Cloud, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff right here in Ontario. I'm Garima Tolwar Kapoor. And I'm Alvin Tejo. Today we're going to be talking about food insecurity in Canada. We often talk about social policy and poverty on the pod, but I think that understanding food insecurity is one of the best ways to understand the people side of the failures of our economy, labor market, and social architecture. As with everything COVID-19 related, we're also going to talk about how the pandemic has exacerbated food insecurity. To help us with our deep dive on food insecurity, we've got two great guests. We have Talia Bronstein, Vice President of Research and Advocacy at the Daily Bread Food Bank. We also have Sasha McNichol, Senior Policy Specialist at Community Food Centers Canada. But before we get to it, let's set the context. To start, household food insecurity refers to the inadequate or insecure access to food because people just don't have enough money. We all need food to survive, as we know, and we all can imagine how seriously food insecurity can affect well-being and health. According to research by Valerie Tarasik and Andy Mitchell, there were 4.4 million people, including more than 1.2 million children under the age of 18, living in food insecure households in 2017-18. That means that over 10% of the population in Canada was food insecure. And we know that there are regional and demographic variations in the level of food insecurity. Food insecurity is much more prevalent in Nunavut than in any other part of Canada. In 2017-18, 57% of households face some level of food insecurity. In the Northwest Territories, that rate was at 20%. And Quebec fared the best with just over 1 in 10 households facing some level of food insecurity. Food insecurity is also most prevalent amongst households with children. In 2017-18, 17.3% of children under 18, or more than 1 in 6, lived in households that experienced food insecurity. Let's remember, that's with the full force of the Canada Child Benefit. Food insecurity is closely related to other markers of social and economic disadvantage. It is most prevalent amongst households with low incomes, lone parent families, those who rent rather than owning their housing, and those who are Indigenous or Black. And this is all before the pandemic. According to recent research by StatsCan about the pandemic, nearly one in seven Canadians now indicate that they live in a household where there has been food insecurity within the past 30 days. Again, as Grima mentioned, before the pandemic, that number was just over 10% of Canadians, meaning food insecurity has increased by 40% across Canada. Today, the Daily Bread Food Bank is releasing a report that further provides the stark reality of how so many people are facing food insecurity because of the pandemic. Entitled, Hunger Lives Here, Risk and Challenges Faced by Food Bank Clients, during COVID-19, the report assesses the factors that have led to an increasing number of marginalized people accessing food banks. While Talia will provide us with a deep dive, here are just some of the highlights. Based on surveys from food bank clients in May and June of this year, the rate of new clients accessing the Daily Bread food banks has tripled since the pandemic began. They went from serving 2,000 new clients in February to over six thousand new clients in June. Among new clients, 
Three in four of them report they began accessing food banks as a result of COVID-19 and the associated economic downturn. One quarter of survey respondents were working during the pandemic, and of these respondents, just under 60% were in occupations that were facing the highest rates of COVID-19 cases. Furthermore, among survey respondents who had income from employment, only about 5% had dental and drug benefits, further increasing the health risks associated with COVID-19. So there's a lot to discuss here, and we're really lucky to get into the discussion with our guests. So welcome to Talia and Sasha to the pod. How are you both? Doing well. Thank you so much for, for having us on the show. <laughs> I'm great. Thank you for having me. So let's start with a bit of an overview of the work that your organizations undertake. How does your organization, how does it fit within the broader food security movement and work? So let's start with Talia and then Sasha, you can answer next. Sure. So Daily Bread Food Bank is a member-based organization. We operate an on-site food bank in South Etobicoke, and we also deliver about a million, 11 million pounds of food annually to over 170 member food banks and meal programs across the city of Toronto. So core to our mission is a recognition that food is a human right and that while we can help meet people's immediate need for food, food banks are not the long-term solution to food insecurity, which is ultimately a product of poverty. So in addition to distributing food, uh, we also conduct primary research to understand uh, the experience of those experiencing food insecurity. Um, As you mentioned, we just put out a report about food bank client experience during COVID-19, and we also release our annual Who's Hungry report in the fall that tracks trends in food insecurity and poverty. And we use this research to inform our advocacy work to push for policy changes to reduce poverty as the root cause of food insecurity. Community Food Centers Canada uh, works with local partners to build community centers in low-income neighborhoods that are focused on healthy food programming. Uh, So that can range from community meals to kitchen and garden programs uh, to local advocacy programs and and other supports like tax clinics. Um, We also support the broader community food security sector through grants, trainings, conferences, and other resources. And finally, we also do research and uh, advocacy work, uh, mostly at the federal level, uh, on food insecurity, poverty, and, and nutrition. Great. Thanks both. One of the reasons why I was so keen and so, um, this is going to sound weird, but excited to have you both on, on the pod is that you both bring different lenses um, and different perspectives to the issue of food insecurity. So Talia, you, you kind of see both the service delivery and the policy side of things. And Sasha, you're really engaged in the in the broader policy making and advocacy end of the work. And I'm keen to understand from your work, what presumptions do you think the general public has about people that live in poverty and face food insecurity? And how does that line up against what you see in your everyday work? Some people, hopefully not most of them, but some people think that somehow it's people's fault that they live in poverty, that they're they're lazy, that they don't want to work. Actually, it, it takes quite a lot of work to be food insecure, uh, both in terms of the time that it takes to access food through charity uh, and, and finding food that's on sale, using coupons, uh, and in, in terms of the mental toll that it takes on people who aren't sure they're going to be able to put food on the table for, for themselves and their families. Um, and 
actually most food insecure people don't use food charity. So they are more likely to do things that are kind of private solutions, but that also mean they're more likely to incur debt that kind of exacerbates the problem. Uh, but it can be very stigmatizing to, uh, unsurprisingly. You know, we're releasing a report in the fall uh, that looks at people's experience of food insecurity, uh, for which we interviewed hundreds of food insecure participants at our partner organizations. And many of them said that their preoccupation with finding a way to feed themselves and their families was all-consuming. And that, that that was a barrier to advancing uh, their lives, to finding and maintaining employment, and um, to feeling like they belonged in a community. I couldn't have said it any better. I, I agree fully with, with everything Sasha just said. Um, I think... I think one of the biggest misconceptions people have is that Canada doesn't really have a food insecurity problem. Um, you know, you mentioned in the introduction that over 4 million Canadians are experiencing food insecurity. And as Sasha said, a lot of people are having these kind of private coping mechanisms. So it's, it's often very hidden. So it can be easy for people to overlook. Um, and I think that people don't fully grasp exactly what a toll that can take on you. And, and as Sasha mentioned, um, it's, it's not so easy to, you know, quote unquote, pull yourself up by your bootstraps when you don't have enough food to eat, when your brain is foggy because, you know, you're, you're exhausted. You're, you're moving from, um, coping mechanism to coping mechanism, never kind of getting stability in your life. So ultimately, our social safety net is failing people. It's, it's pure and simple. And that's what's driving food insecurity. I think a lot of people think food is the solution to food insecurity, that if, you, that if you give people food, they won't be food insecure. And so this drives a lot of uh, the kind of, this drives donations to uh, organizations that are providing people with food. Um, but really what, what we need is a better social safety net. Really what we need is to be providing people with enough income that people aren't living on, say, you know, $733 a month that you would get on Ontario Works. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more there, Sasha. I mean, I was a big advocate for basic income for a number of reasons, including to try and make more Canadians uh, food secure. I'm wondering what your experiences have been during the pandemic with how in, you know, how like most sectors and systems that the how you've had to adapt and pivot during the pandemic. We know that there are a lot of uh, charities and not for profit who are struggling to get by because donations are have dried up because people can't afford to donate. And with an increase in demand that you're obviously seeing right now, um, what does this look like from your perspective? And how did the how have food banks and organizations have had to pivot uh, during the pandemic? When the pandemic took hold, we had to rapidly adapt our services. So a number of food banks had to close down because they were in community centers that had that were mandated to close or were run by volunteers that were high risk or were in spaces too small uh, to physically distance. So our first two priorities were uh, closing these geographic gaps in access and also adapting our warehouse operations to make sure our staff were safe um, and that we never missed a food delivery. And that was really critical for us because as much as we recognize that food banks are not 
the the long-term solution to food insecurity, we still have 15,000 individuals who are accessing food banks prior to the pandemic. And now we're averaging about 20,000 individuals per week. So we need to make sure that those individuals have that that service um, in the absence of this, this stronger safety net that we're trying to build. So now we've fully restored and even actually expanded service levels to pre-COVID, and we were really able to do that through community partnerships. Um, I think my biggest lesson learned was people are always looking to the for-profit sector for lessons and you know nimbleness, but I'm telling you, if you ever need a rapid response to a problem, the community services sector will give you a lesson in what agility looks like. I was just blown away by the rapid responses all across the city, um, organizations and groups responding to local need. So that was pretty incredible to see. And on the advocacy front, um, I'd say the pandemic opened up the biggest policy window I've seen in my professional career so far. Um, so it's pretty incredible to see government mobilize so quickly. Um, but at the same time, that rapidly built safety net has gaps. So we got to work to understand what those gaps are. A new research report finds that 76% of households that had at least one person employed uh, pre-COVID experienced job losses, and 30% received the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, CERB, but they're still unable to afford basic necessities because of the high cost of living in Toronto. We also saw big gaps in access in terms of social assistance recipients who were not able to receive uh, emergency COVID benefits because of barriers. So our advocacy really continues to address these immediate needs, uh, but we're also focusing our efforts on pushing for more systemic changes to income security in particular so that we're better, better res there's higher resiliency um, in the community when a, a situation like this arises, but also just in the day-to-day -day lives people are leading. So, you know, we really are all about bringing, to bringing people together around food. Uh, and that's really mostly had to be shut down. So we've really pivoted towards emergency food assistance, uh, hampers, food deliveries, handing out grocery cards. And we're really concerned about social isolation. One of the things that people tell us, and they tell us so much that, you know, it, it seems like it's as important as the, as the food that we provide, is that a community food center is a place to go. It's a place where you can find community, where you can meet people. I've spoken to participants at community food centers who are seniors who say that if they didn't have the, the community food center, they would be at home by themselves watching TV. So that's something that, that I think often gets, gets forgotten or missed. And, and it was really great that the federal government came along with, with $100 million of funding for emergency food assistance which we believe should only actually be necessary in, a, in an emergency. Uh, Community Food Centers Canada got, got some of that money, as did other uh, food bank organizations and, and community food security organizations. And we have managed uh, in a very short time to, uh, raise, a lot, uh, to raise a lot of money and to, to uh, get that money out to as many communities uh, municipalities, indigenous communities, as possible. Uh, so that has been that has been great. Uh, but really, I think what was more meaningful was income supports like the CERB. So as Talia mentioned, two thousand dollars a month is often not enough money for for people to live on, especially if 
for example, they live in an expensive city like Toronto, and that might barely cover their rent. Uh, but we've heard, for example, in our center in Iqaluit, that they've actually seen the need go down because so many of the people that they are serving are making so much less than $2,000 a month. And so that really points to the fact that if we want to reduce food insecurity in Canada, we're going to need increased people's incomes. I'll also add um, that's absolutely true. And um, when we look nationally, our um, National Association of Food Banks, Food Banks Canada, has found just that, that um, in areas that the cost of living is not as high, um, there has been significant reductions in food bank use. So I think that that just goes to show you the importance of income uh, to food insecurity. But when we think of a, a policy response, we have to be really conscientious of the fact that Canada is such a diverse geography. There's diverse populations. Uh, so we need to be mindful of, uh, you know, one size fits all versus tailored programming. But I think if anything, COVID-19 has taught us what's possible, that we can rapidly roll out these kinds of income supports. So it was it was really filled me with a sense of optimism of what's what could potentially come in the future. Yeah. Can I follow up on that a little bit? I think, you know, yeah, Canada is made up of like many geographies, many and many different populations. And it's also got a number of different labor markets and housing markets. And so when we think about, you know, what I, what's really interesting is like how food bank usage um, has either increased or decreased, like there's a nuance in that depending on where you live in the country. And so as we think about policy responses and Talia picking up sort of on like, you know, what does um, what does a nuanced policy approach look like? Like what are some of the threads of a social safety net outside of income do you think that people need? And this might be a bit stretching, um, in some regard, but like, you know, there's often the reason why CERB isn't going as far in Toronto as it is in other areas of the country is because of the housing market. So in your work, have you sort of explored what, what other sort of supports people need to help provide them with the services that they are no longer getting from work? Um, whether it's, employer health benefits, whether it's a pension, like has your work sort of examined um, those areas of the social safety net? Absolutely. We look at more than just income because we know that income isn't, is necessary, but not sufficient to address uh, the complex needs of individuals who are experiencing poverty. So for us in Toronto, because we are um, an organization that our mandate is centered in Toronto, Affordable housing is one of our biggest areas of advocacy. Um, so our last Who's Hungry report found that food bank clients were paying a median of 74% of their income on housing, which is extremely high. Uh, anything over about 50% of income on housing puts you at a high risk for be, uh, for homelessness. So um, we can just see how precariously positioned these individuals are. And now during COVID, the number, the percent of clients paying 50% or more of their income on housing rose from 67% to 81%. So that means 81% of food bank clients are now, as a result of COVID, at a high risk 
for homelessness. So in Toronto, we have a, a subsidized housing wait list of over 100,000 individuals. So we're just, we're falling far, far behind in meeting that need. Um, so that's an area that um, we certainly prioritize in Toronto. 30% of people who are food insecure have incomes above the low income measure. And uh, these people might be marginally food insecure or moderately food insecure instead of, you know, being really severely food insecure. Um, but the reason that income isn't enough for them uh, is that maybe they live in a place like Toronto uh, or Vancouver where uh, rent is extremely expensive. Uh, maybe they have small children and the cost of childcare in many parts of the country is extremely high. Uh, maybe they can't afford their prescription medication. And so I think on top of uh, affordable housing, we also need to look at um, childcare programs. We also need to look at uh, uh, pharmacare and other kinds of programs that can help people make ends meet. Uh, and then when you look in the north, a lot of people in northern communities are spending double or more what people are spending in the south on food. And so we need to make sure that programs like Nutrition North are better at, in, at lowering food insecurity because so far Nutrition North has not really uh, been, been that helpful. Actually, we've seen increases in northern communities of food insecurity. And I also just pick up on what, Sasha, you were mentioning earlier around the social isolation. Um, another finding we had from, from COVID was just around the immense stress and anxiety that people are facing living through a pandemic. I think we can all kind of identify with that, but particularly the stress and anxiety of being able to access food, uh, which our research shows has tripled. But also clients have talked about how... Uh, they weren't able to access the services that they normally could. So mental health services, other community programs that have that social inclusion kind of element to it. And without those programs, you know, mental health is is such a, a challenge that I think we're starting more and more to understand just how vital mental health is for people's well-being. Um, but for example, you know, the wraparound supports people need to, to stabilize their lives, uh, go go beyond income. They, they include things like mental health um, to get people the, the stable footing that they need to to live a kind of well life. Um, and I think that's something that our government needs to really be focusing, particularly as we exit this pandemic where people have lost access to services and have faced extreme social isolation. That's going to be a big issue moving forward. So we've started touching on, you know, how government is involved, how much there's more to it uh, about food insecurity than just a lack of food or just a lack of income. And since both of you have kind of an advocacy role or at least a messaging role uh, on behalf of your organizations to talk about these things, I'm wondering if you could, you know, either wave a magic wand or if you had a captive audience with the premier or the prime minister or the mayor, you know, what are your top uh, what are your top lines that you want them to understand and know about how to tackle this challenge? And where would you try to put the most resources? I think what's what's important to note is that uh, 
Canada actually has pretty generous supports for seniors and for uh, parents with children. So, for example, upon reaching the age of 65, uh, one's risk of food insecurity decreases by 50% because you're now eligible for seniors' benefits like old age security, the guaranteed income supplement, CPP. Um, and the Canada Child Benefit actually reduced food insecurity among severely food insecure households with children by 30%. And so that's, that's amazing. And it really shows that increasing incomes is the best way to reduce food insecurity. But there's this gap in the middle of working age adults without children. And so we really need income supports for those, for those people. Uh, provincial and territorial governments can, uh, can support this, this demographic by increasing social assistance rates, uh, increasing minimum wage, uh, and the federal government should really look at how they can support that that demographic because I think they've mostly left it up to the provinces. So by um, by, for example, introducing a tax credit for for working age adults or um, potentially exploring basic income or uh, by um, by seeing how uh, employment insurance can better serve the needs of, of low-wage workers. I agree with, with all of the above. Um, so Sasha will just uh, run for office and get it done. Um, I think the for us, social assistance clients make up 60% of, of clients at food banks. So I think that just really goes to show you that social assistance rates are keeping people in poverty. The, um, the supports people receive on social assistance in terms of the financial support, but also kind of the case management is not setting people up for success. It's not helping people move out of poverty. So our federal government has a poverty reduction strategy. It sets poverty reduction targets. But my biggest concern is that those targets move up, will, will be successful in moving people who are in kind of um, the shallower end of poverty. And the people who experience the deepest poverty, the most complex uh, poverty, will still struggle um, to exit poverty. I think that persistent poverty is something that we really need to be focusing on. And ultimately, that starts with, first and foremost, a basic safety net. And that includes income supports, that includes PharmaCare, that includes childcare. So we really need to raise that that base up um, because otherwise these challenges that you just can't overcome it. When, as Sasha mentioned, if you're only making, if you're only receiving $733 a month on Ontario Works, um, you're just simply not going to achieve financial stability. Um, so that would be my my top priority, as well as on the uh, affordable housing side of things. I think uh, we have our, our national affordable housing strategy, which, you know, I was so happy to see the federal government taking that initiative on. Um, but it's it's going to continue to be a challenge in Canada. So we have to keep our eyes uh, focused on that and make sure that we're investing in building bricks and mortar, 
affordable housing and also um, supporting municipalities uh, best we can in managing the kind of demand and supply of housing, uh, particularly affordable housing. And when affordable, when I say affordable, I mean truly affordable housing in Toronto our average market rate is not so affordable for, for most folks. So um, those are the two areas that I would focus on. Thanks, Talia and Sasha. That was really, really, really um, helpful and informative. I often think about um, something that friend of the pod, uh, John Stapleton, often talks about in terms of thinking about shallow poverty versus deep poverty and you know, governments, when they set out um, goals, uh, when it comes to poverty reduction, can can do like very low hanging fruit type things to help uh, to help people move out of the shallow end of poverty, and that's good. But if we want to try to address um, the deep complexities of deep poverty, we really do need all hands on deck and we need to strengthen all threads of the social safety net. And so as we think about a post-pandemic labor market and reality in which one is playing out right now where inequities are increasing and Talia, you're seeing food insecurity amongst marginalized people increase. I'm wondering if you had to sort of further deepen this understanding and take an intersectional and intersectional lens um, to your work. What um, beyond talking about housing and beyond talking about um, income, income supports, which are all important. um, Do you think we actually have the, the uh, disaggregated data we need to be able to, to think about intersectional supports, think about how we provide uh, Black, Indigenous, and people of color um, the the very nuanced set of supports they need. Sasha, I can maybe I'll start with you with the work that you do with community um, food centers, and and just ask how intersectionality plays into your work. Uh, unfortunately, food insecurity is a much bigger problem for some demographics than for, for others in Canada. So, uh, for example, uh, nearly 30% of Black people and Indigenous people off-reserve, uh, about a third of single mothers, and up to 70% of Inuit adults of Inuit adults in some northern communities are food insecure. Uh, this compares to about 11% of non-racialized people. Uh, there's some research that, that hasn't yet been published but is going through peer review at the moment that looks at food insecurity among Black Canadians and shows that even when you take things like household income, household composition, uh, home ownership um, into account, Black people are still much more likely, almost twice as likely to be food insecure as white people. And so this really points to systemic racism as as the reason. Um, For example, uh, black homeowners are uh, as likely to be food insecure as white renters, even though homeownership is generally seen as protective against food insecurity. 
So, sadly, I don't think we know quite enough about um, about this problem uh, in order to to um, figure out how to fix it. So, one of the things that Valerie Tarasek, one of the main researchers, um, told me was that we need better race-based data. So the way that we um, have traditionally, I think it's about to change, um, been measuring food insecurity is through the Canada, the Canadian Community Health Survey, uh, which does look at uh, race, but we have such low samples for some populations, like for example, with black Canadians, that we're going to need to figure out how we can get better data, for example, through oversampling. Um, through our work, uh, we've noticed that food insecurity can be a barrier to participation in culture. Um, so we always let our local partners lead. Uh, at our community food center in Winnipeg, there's a large Filipino population, and so they have Filipino cooking groups. Um, at our community food center in Eel Ground First Nation in New Brunswick, they've really been working to uh, reintroduce moose meat as um, uh, a, a kind of main staple in people's diets. And uh, you know, through COVID, we've been helping. Um, our community food center in northern Saskatchewan support their hunters in order to be able to um, have culturally appropriate food. Uh, so I think that there's a lot of things we can do. Uh, we can be better at supporting Indigenous food sovereignty, um, perhaps through an Indigenous food sovereignty fund at the, at the federal government. Um, we can make sure that we're getting good enough data so that we can uh, target policies to the people who are most food insecure. But it's definitely something that, that needs to be addressed urgently. Thanks, Sasha. Uh, Talia? Yeah, I think the most important thing to keep in mind here is, is that poverty and food insecurity discriminate. Um, it's not by chance that we see folks who are racialized, uh, who have immigrated to Canada, who have perhaps have a disability, experience food insecurity at a higher rate. Uh, that's that's what really what we see in our data. Part of what we do at Daily Bread is we do this annual survey of food bank clients, and it's to really try and understand the experiences of those who are coming to food banks. Who are these individuals? What? How does that different? How does that experience differ depending on uh, the individual's kind of background or uh, experience going through the world? So um, we definitely find an overrepresentation of racialized households accessing food banks. Um, for most of our clients are Canadian citizens, um, but uh, more than half report being born outside of Canada. And the interesting thing is that among these clients, the majority uh, have been in Canada for over 10 years, which means that these are individuals who, you know, have have spent a long time in Canada, have, um, you know, tried to integrate into the country they live in and are still facing um, food insecurity and are still experiencing poverty. We also see a, a very large portion of our clients living with disabilities. Um, so again, this this one size fits all approach to policy, uh, approach to programming, it simply doesn't work. We need we need to understand these experiences to tailor services, to tailor policies, and um, you know, similar to what Sasha was mentioning, it's so important to work with community. So 
our programs, we are a member-based organization. So we really um, work with agencies, work with community groups to build capacity so that um, those local community responses can effectively meet community need. Um, and through participation with um, food access tables around the city, our, uh, our staff really try and identify what are those kind of very specific local community needs um, and how can we best kind of tailor tailor to meet that. But do we still have a long way to go? Absolutely. Thanks so much, Talia and Sasha. That was really, really insightful. And I think an urgently needed discussion that I'm hopeful turns to policy action um, in the near term. As a reminder for folks listening, that was Talia Bronstein, Vice President of Research and Advocacy at the Daily Bread Food Bank. We also have Sasha McNichol, Senior Policy Specialist at Community Food Centres Canada. And that's all for today's episode, folks. This Friday, we will be back with our final episode for the summer, the last episode of the season, and our 100th episode ever. We'll be doing a roundtable with all our hosts and open the mailbag of listener questions. So be sure to tune in. Don't forget to like, follow, or subscribe to Ontario Live on your podcast app and across social media. If you have thoughts on what you heard today, get at us on Twitter at Ontario Loud or email us at OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com and we will get back to you. We love hearing your feedback. Ontario Loud is Dan Andre, Alvin Tejo, Chris Martin, Alexi White, and me, Karima Talwar Kapoor. We are supported by amazing volunteers, Aisha Anwar and Carmen Mundy. Thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. To become a supporter, you can go to patreon.com slash OntarioLoud or ontarioloud.ca and click on the Patreon link. As always, thanks so much for listening.